no, I, I never turn on the video. Are you kidding? Since this thing started, I haven't bathed in weeks. <laughs> Welcome back. It's episode 132 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, where all of our online courses just turn out to be rickrolls. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter and guy whose homemade COVID-19 cures have been described by the FDA as, quote, not substantiated by science and, quote, nothing more than table salt. And I am joined, as always, by the Bo and Luke of the conservative legal movement. John does the moonshining. Richard drives the Dodge Charger. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. So, fellas, this is a slightly different show than we'd normally do. Today is going to be sort of a micro-episode just centered around all the issues arising out of the coronavirus. And also, before we start, we'd just like to send our best wishes out to David Latt, the founder of the Above the Law blog, which has been kind to this show over the years. He's in the hospital here in New York battling a pretty severe case of COVID-19, and uh, we're wishing him a speedy recovery. So lots for us to talk about today. Uh, Why don't we just start with the shutdowns? I mean, life has pretty much ground to a halt where all of us are. For Richard and I in the New York City area, John, for you in Northern California. So mandatory closures for all non-essential businesses, um, the definition of which is slippery, shelter-in-place orders in some locales, and the complaining that you heard, at least initially, from some libertarian types, this is starting to die down now, is where does this authority come from? How does the government get to, by fiat, tell these places to close? So why don't we start by clarifying that. John, map the legal landscape for us here. Where do these authorities come from? What do they look like? What are the boundaries on them? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think people politically expect the president to do everything, but that's far from the truth. Although it doesn't mean that the power of the government as a whole is unlimited. So the federal government plays a limited role. It doesn't have a power to end epidemics. The federal government's power is just to control uh, crossing of the borders, interstate commerce, and then to spend money. And so what you've seen Trump doing is really pushing the president's powers pretty much to those limits. Uh, pushing out $50 billion to the states in emergency funding, trying to accelerate searches for vaccines and cures, um, trying to prevent people from flying in from abroad who might have the disease. But the president doesn't actually have all the powers that people are currently griping about. Those are really in the hands of uh, Andrew Cuomo, Gavin Newsom, and the other state governors. They have what's called under constitution, constitutional law the police power which means that they can pretty much regulate all conduct that occurs within the borders of their states. And so quarantines, lockdowns, all of that is under the control of state governors and state law. And so I've looked pretty carefully at what's been going on in California, and there is something called an emergency act in California. And it says if the governor declares an emergency, this is passed by the legislature, which says when Governor Newsom declares an emergency, he comes into Uh, the full police powers of the state. And so he does have the authority to announce the kind of severe lockdowns we're suffering from here. That doesn't mean that he won't have to pay or the state won't have to pay for some of the damages that it's causing. Uh, And I also think this is 
good idea because if the states are in charge, they're closer to the situation. They have more personnel and resources. They can change the policy. States can experiment. Not all states are doing the lockdown. But also, if it looks like it's an overreaction or a panic, I think political pressure can be brought to bear much more quickly and responsibly onto state governments and get them to change. And we might be at that point in a week or so. Richard, uh, before, I, I want you to respond to all of that and add whatever you have to add, but I have one additional question that I'd like you to address, okay. which is to what extent could a governor or governor's administration be challenged for not doing enough? There actually is a lawsuit right now in Florida against Governor DeSantis's administration because they've been slow to close the beaches and things like that. Does that have any prospect of succeeding in the courts? Those cases almost never succeed because the essence of the police power is that it's a, cons a discretionary act of power given by the state to the governor subject to whatever limitations the state legislation had. And the standard rule of administrative law is you could stop illegal actions. It's extremely difficult under either federal or state law to get an agency to force them to do something unless there's a very clear statutory command of the form which begins with shall. Uh, indeed, if you decided to allow this state to go forward, there would be 20,000 other suits of a similar nature, and they would all put inconsistent budgetary demands on the overall system. So there's literally no authority whatsoever for this kind of stuff to take place. Now, if you're trying to figure out what's going on with respect to the way in which the uh, the world runs, I disagree with John on the constitutional power. Um, he's making it sound as though the year's 1930, and what we do is we have a federal government with a spending power and the ability to regulate interstate commerce. But we do know that the federal power since about 1940. 1937, has allowed them to determine whether or not you could feed grain on your own land to your own animals. And so if it's a question of the scope of the uh, police power or the commerce power, it is coterminous with the police power of the state. Uh, historically, however, in terms of culture, uh, there are many, many things that the federal government doesn't get itself into, even though constitutionally under Wicked and Filbert and Jones and Laughlin, it has that power. So you don't see any federal zoning statutes take place. But what you do see is federal environmental regulations being imposed. I think the reason why Trump decided that he was not going to get into this is he has no idea what he's going to do when he gets there, uh, that local variations are extremely important, and that I think he took the right position uh, to say, I'm a backstop. Uh, I'm not going to be the original pleader. Uh, it then goes down to states, and I'm going to make the following joke again. For years, I've always said, here's a classical liberal who manages to find three of the worst states in which to have his academic positions, New York, Illinois, and California. Those are the three states that lead the police power shutdown. So I can't go from one to another unless I want to go from one set of manacles into another set of manacles. And they all do it. What makes this so odd is that John said is uh, the, you want the states to do because they have different problems. Uh, but the thing that is so perfectly clear under these circumstances is there are different problems within different parts of each of these states. In uh, New York, there is a genuine situation here, more serious than anywhere else in the country. It's less serious in terms of current impact uh, than the typical flu season, uh, but it could be turned into something worse, although that's something I doubt. But one understands, okay, uh, you want to basically clamp down on New York City restaurants, fine. 
But why do you want to do it in Buffalo or Rochester or Albany or where there are no cases? And it turns out, if you look around, we have enough experience now to realize that although the virus hypothetically can spread, generally uh, the point of maximum impact is the point where it tends to stay. So it's all in the New York area. And if you go out to Washington State where they had this terrible incident at the Kirkland uh, nursing home facility, it turned out that lots of people died there. But in that state, all the aftermath has come right in that Kirkland, Seattle area, nowhere else. In Los Angeles, or rather in California, there is no hot spot at this particular point in time. And in Illinois, there is no hot spot at this point in time. Uh, there are about 12 deaths in the one state and about 40 in the other state. Um, this would be a number that you would not pay attention to except for the inordinate detention that's going on. So the plea would be, is for heaven's sake, pull back in those areas where there isn't much of a spread and where you you will certainly have enough time if it turns out you should start to see momentum uh, drawing, and then you could do it locally. Uh, but what has happened in all these cases is the governors have declared statements. They have a very clear model, um, and their model of the penetration of the virus is that it's the same risk everywhere throughout the United States. We're just in different stages of its progression. So New York is a couple of weeks ahead of Rochester and so forth. It's a model which you know I've taken very strenuous issue with, have gotten fierce blowback by large numbers of the professional side, uh, but I've gotten lots of support from other people who are gracious enough to constantly send me information, uh, which helps uh, illuminate what the situation is. So I think the uh, police power should be local. The danger, of course, is that once you say that the governor has the power and can use it, then what's going to happen after the declaration is you're going to start getting executive orders by the governor. In order to implement this, you have to do that. So to give you but one illustration, there is a recent order that comes out of California in which what they announce is uh, we have authority under Section 397F of the California Code. And what we're going to do under that particular section is we can stop evictions. Okay, you can stop evictions. The statute says for 30 days. And then there's another section which says after it, Section G, uh, that you can do it for another 30 days if you re-up it. And what does the current order do? It simply waives the... Uh, renewal provision and says we're doing it right now for X periods of days. That's illegal as far as I'm concerned. The whole point of limiting it to 30 days and having a re-examination is to make sure that you take into account um, change conditions and to make sure that when you look at these kinds of things uh, that the governor is going to give it a fresh look. Richard, um, Richard can, I, can I just ask one question? One point, though, is that um, putting aside California law, if I remember my old con law, this was yeah. done during the New Deal. There was a mortgage um, ah, holidays where and there's this ah, case, no, no, right no, called no, no. Blais Blaisdell, isn't it called? Where, Blaisdell against uh, the home mortgage. Yeah, the people said the mortgage holders were. A state said you don't have to pay. You still have to no. pay the mortgage, but you can't evict. No, but it, the it, states, it, the Supreme Court say. Well, basically, they said they killed off the contracts clause, right? They just basically said, well, in this no. the strong public need during this time of depression, we're not going to say this is an infringement of the contracts clause, even though I think it was. You would probably say it was. Uh, putting aside which states have different laws to allow no, the you didn't, you rental didn't eviction holidays, they, John, the John. Supreme Court said they won't do it. Well, the Supreme Court would it's use the contracts clause to stop it, it. It did not say that. It's important to understand what it did say. It said essentially that you have an ability to suspend the payment of the mortgage. 
But it said, in effect, what you have to do is to give the mortgage holder a fair and exact equivalent of what you've taken away so you can alter the payment stream by way of compensation. You cannot excuse them uh, from right. the payment at all. You still have to keep paying, but you can change yeah, the contract. You, you, yes. So wow. I'm not saying it, it's – it turned out this was a huge disaster. Oh, I agree. I agree. But, but for the reasons, well, there were so many disasters. Let me see if I can unpack them. First of all, but, the but reason. My only point is because of those New Deal cases, I mean, we would read the takings clause and the contracts clause but in a even, much even today, way. I mean. Oh, you know, that, even today, you don't, you think the courts might say, suppose, so in California, you can't, in my city of Berkeley, they did, they issued similar orders. They said you can't evict someone. For non-payment, I understand, rent. but they said there was an obligation. Court, federal okay. courts just say, "Uh, oh, sorry, we're going to allow it." No, let me tell you what I think the correct answer is, consistent with Boisdell. Boisdell said what you have to do is to give a full and fair equivalent for the deferred payments. They didn't always mean that. So what they did is they followed the model that you use in bankruptcy, where when you have an essential asset for the firm, it stays in the corporation, even though there's a person who has a lien on it who could normally remove it. But then what you have to do is to give him consideration out of the future flows that are equal in value to what he would get. What's interesting about this particular statute is the state does not say we will guarantee the payments if they are not made afterwards. So you have the following very likely situation. You give somebody 60 days of free rent. After that time, they can't afford to stay in the premises anyhow. Out they go, and there'll be no chance whatsoever to recoup the losses. So the correct model would be for this, if the state wants you to keep them in, they could even defer the payments. But at the end, what they have to do is to guarantee the payments with interest. In this case, it's an unsecured claim, and there's no interest that's associated with it. And so even under Blaisdell, if you look at the fine print of the case, it could come out the other way. If one wants to be just look at broad emergency powers, you could do it. But I'm making a slightly different argument, John. I'm saying if you look at the statute on evictions, right, it has two provisions. It has one for the 30-day period. It doesn't talk about back rent, although a little at the end. And then it has one G, which starts talking about an extension of the period. What the governor seems to have said is I can waive the first provision on the limits contained in Section 396F, which makes – the whole section no, 39060. I, I, I understand your point, Richard. I'm and just saying point, yeah, yeah. this is going to vary from state to state. We understand, the, but they all yeah. have statutes. But, and the key thing yeah. to understand is the first line of challenge with respect to these emergency pieces of legislation is to see whether or not the government, the governor has exceeded his statutory powers. Oh, okay, I, let, I, let, and that let me. I was just going to say the good thing to do for California or any state is to say, okay, maybe we make a, made a mistake. Maybe we we didn't have the – or maybe we did have to stop evictions and we're putting the burden on property owners, uh, land own, uh, landlords, and so on. They should then they should just up front say we'll compensate. It's just as if they commandeered a hotel and forced the hotels to take in people. And in that case, no one would doubt that the state would have to pay the hotel owner. So this is a good opportunity for the governor to say, look, I understand that you know I'm you know we're imposing costs on the economy, and one of those costs is giving everybody basically free rent for several months during the period of the emergency, and the state will proactively compensate you for the loss. That would be, uh, I think that would be the best thing let, to do. Let me explain why that's both right and wrong, okay? 
It turns out that there's a complication with respect to the takings law that has to be taken into account. Uh, so if it turns out that what you do is you have a single person who is subject to this, like in a bankruptcy, and you impose that agreement and you say that the state has to backstop it unless it gives full and adequate security, um, you're going to have the many pay for the benefits that they're going to give to the one because they want to do it. But now suppose that you have in the opposite extreme half the state of landlords. Uh, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to tax all these guys in the one capacity in order to pay them in the other. And it turns out that in the normal situation, uh, if you try to do this, it's a negative sum game. You've already lost money in the one way. You try to raise it by taxes, you're going to lose money in the other way. So the compensation remedy does not work precisely because everybody or nearly everybody is going to be required to compensate everybody or nearly everybody. So what's the difference between this and, say, a flat tax? Well, a flat tax takes something from everybody, but it gives back uh, in a well-run state public benefits that are equal or greater than the taxes that are done. So that's a positive sum game. And you don't have to compensate people who are winners for the losses that they suffered. If you gain 10 and lost eight, you don't get $8 in separate compensation when you've already gotten the $10 worth of social benefits. But this is a redistributive scheme, and you don't have that result. Redistributive schemes always turn out to be negative sum, and so it doesn't work. So when you're dealing with system-wide failures, the fundamental theorem is there's no compensation option that's viable. Either you stop it or you're going to hemorrhage. And given the attitude that we know in California, particularly with their uh, nine liberal judges on the California Supreme Court, uh, they're going to hemorrhage. So Richard brought up the projections about infection rates and potential fatalities earlier. John, I know you've been looking at some of the disease modeling as well with a former Obama administration official, I believe. Are, are you as skeptical of the worst case projections as Richard well, I, I really uh, read maybe too quickly Richard's analysis, which was up at Hoover. Uh, so I, I was going off of the estimates I saw from two Stanford medical school doctors that was up at the Wall Street Journal today, and I was doing some back-of-the-envelope yeah. accounts, too. It just seems to me that the economic costs of the lockdowns just exceed the you know, purported benefits. Uh, and the cost side is pretty easy to measure. And and look, some people might just say, apparently the governor has this view, uh, uh, you know, we'll do anything to save one life. And I think that's what uh, Governor Cuomo said in New York. But that's just not true. I mean, government is just a series unfortunate of unfortunate trade-offs. And that's why we elect people to those jobs is to make those hard trade-offs. And so, this, uh, so let's put the the cost side. The cost side is economics. So we're an economy of $24 trillion. Every month, the economy is shut down. You know, you're losing, say, three quarters of that. So you're losing three quarters of $2 trillion. In California, that's something a little bit north of $200 billion a month, since United California is like 15, 20% of the economy. So in California alone, the shutdown is costing, I think, around 200 to $250 billion per month. So that's the cost side. That's a lot of money. That's just each month that goes on. On the other side, you have to take into account how many... It's not how many lives you're saving because we don't really know what that is exactly. It's more uh, what is our estimate of the chances of there being a real outbreak and how many lives there would be lost in that outbreak. That's called expected harm, right? It's just like, 
uh, it's like how you value things like pro uh, lottery tickets, stock options, so on. You take the probability and you multiply it by the magnitude. Now, the problem, I think, I think Richard made this point too, the problem with all the estimates you're seeing right now about the mortality rate of this disease is based on the confirmed cases dividing into the number of deaths. Now, we have a very good idea of what the number of deaths are, but we don't really know what the cases really are because all you're doing is counting the cases where the tests have come back positive. And in social science, that's called selection bias problem. Only the people who are really sick are getting tested. We don't really have good – although I, I think Richard needs a test there. <laughs> well, I do have this nagging cold, which comes well, from frustration. Really? <laughs> frustration. So the way you would figure, you know, the, the problem – so these people, the, these two doctors at Stanford, I think, actually put some good numbers on it. Um, rather than sort of the questions that people like uh, me and Richard are asking, and their their view is that if you you know based on random testing, you know different populations, they think that about 2.2 percent of a population will get infected with the coronavirus. Not the estimates of 50 percent, 70 percent. You're seeing these wild estimates that you're seeing. I think, which are really coming from the Spanish flu when people weren't really sure then about germs yet. <laughs> and they certainly didn't have the kind of medical treatments that we they have today. Just... They certainly didn't have social distancing. It was just like it is 100 years ago. Um, I think that's a strain. I mean, I just don't think those are reliable figures. And they don't think they counted properly back then either. So you know, these doctors say it's really about 2.2%, 3%. If that's true, then you're talking about say, 7 million infected Americans, not 180 million. And then that you're talking about 25,000 Californians. And so then the other key figure is what's their mortality rate? And here, I think the, the doctors, law doctors think it's around between 1% and 2% in a country like the United States with a modern health care system. Then you're saying we're shutting down the economy. In California, we're costing $200 billion a month uh, to save, to reduce the chances of an epidemic that would kill, at worst, about 19, 20,000 people. And that's not that's even statewide or nationwide. Your statewide. I'm just I'm making the numbers statewide just so it's easier to understand. And that doesn't take into account just, you know, you're not going to save all of them. You're only reducing the chances for some of them. Say half of them are going to die. Yeah. And you yes, all these extreme measures reduce it another fifty, you know, reduce this to zero. You're still spending two hundred billion dollars to save an expected cost of nine thousand lives. That seems extremely excessive uh, to me. It just doesn't seem to be worth it. And then the the you know, for people who care about equity, the other point to make is your that money, that two hundred billion dollars, a lot of that would go to the poorest people in our society to make ends meet, who are living to paycheck to paycheck. Uh, those are the ones who are going to be hurt hardest by this kind of. So that's so I I think Richard's numbers and I are, are different, but I think we come out to the same place because we're both kind of skeptical about using the data from the Spanish flu to estimate how rapidly it yeah. would it would spread in the United States and how many people would die. Um, when I did this on March 16th, probably the most fateful column I've ever written. I did make one howling unnecessary. Hey, it's the most fateful column. Uh, well, I mean, there's no question. I've never written anything 
which has had a fraction of the public attention that the March 16th column had. Really? And, yeah, does absolutely. Howlers in your time, Richard. Uh, I, I, mean, I make all sorts of howlers, and I made a gratuitous howler in this one. I put really? in the number, which didn't even match my own thing, of 500 deaths from the coronavirus, and so everybody says the man is a crank. They read a little bit further. Uh, what I really said was that, you know, this is a low estimate. It was actually the wrong number. I should have put in something like 5,000, which may even turn out to be low. Put in that number. What I did is I actually went back and looked at the standard epidemiological model. Models, which I've always been critical of. And I thought what they did is they did not take into account key features of coevolution of the way in which viruses operate, a point on which I've been mightily attacked, and the value of adaptive responses independent of state regulation. Now, if you take both of those things into account, the first one suggests that as time marches on, the virus will become less virulent, and I could give you the mechanisms of why that should be so. But more obviously, on the other side, it turns out as the avoidance measures start to increase, you'd expect the rate to go down. So you don't want to say if you're going to save, let's say, 25,000 people nationwide, that all of it's attributable to the coercive regulation. A lot of it is going to be attributable to private self-avoidance behavior and institutional responses about how you run your restaurants, gyms, and clubs and everything. It may be as simple as saying, you want to come to this gym? You have to wear a face mask and you have to use Purell on your hand or something like that in order to do so the number of deaths saved has to be done on a marginal basis. And my guess is less than half of these will be related to the sort of the grand things that they're going to try to put into place, because I think they overestimate the level of connectivity and transmissibility of the toxic forms of the virus. So I think that's the first one. On the other side is it turns out that you also have to add into the equation all of the lives that are going to be lost because of insufficient exercise, diets, uh, various kinds of palliative measures that we put into place. The New York Times had a heart-rending story this morning which sorts of announced that people who are in ICU on their last legs cannot have their spouses in the room. They seem to be worried about coronaviruses between two people, one of whom is nearly dead and the other who would gladly assume the risk. I mean, after a while, it becomes the theater of the grotesque. So you have to add back in the number of deaths that are going to be caused by this thing, even before you get to the economic stuff. And on the economic stuff, I think John gives the GDP numbers, which I think are probably, I don't know whether better or worse. I use 50%, which is a trillion dollars a month per state, roughly speaking. He's using a steeper number. But remember, the GDP does not involve all of our social interaction. There's some Something known as consumer surplus. I go to the restaurant and join the friends at the bar, and it costs me a hundred bucks. They say the GDP has been improved by a hundred dollars because of the expenditure. But what makes it work is that I actually get a benefit equal to $125 because I really like being with my friends. All of that consumer surplus disappears when you put people into the privacy of their own homes, alone with their spouses and their friends or their immediate family. I mean, just the inability of grandparents to see grandchildren, right, is a constant theme. That's not in the GDP tables. And I could maybe in New York you want to do that, but leave it to the parents to decide. But you really want to do this in Oklahoma? 
or in San Diego. And so the costs are much higher. It's always a mistake uh, to accuse economists of essentially only caring about profits and money by looking at the GDP. If you're looking at the world, essentially what you take into account is wealth as a rough proxy for utility. But if you're being much more systemic about it, uh, the utility, i.e. Uh, the consumer surplus and, and producer surplus in certain transactions has to be taken into account as well. So every one of John's estimates is right, and every one of them understates what the total level of loss is. And what's driving this? Well, I mean, there was, I guess, a particularly idiotic statement, which I misread at one time, by Bill Gates saying, how could you go around your ordinary life when there are people dying in a corner? Well, I think the answer is we've done that since the beginning of time, and it's not that we ignore them. It's that we try to take care of them without shutting down the economy. And so what we do is we have here a classic illustration of a consumer nerd who has become at this point, um, shall we say, the worst kind of political statement. It's statements like that that are an embarrassment to the man. And since he seems to me to be making such self-evident falsehoods, he really ought to learn to be quiet. When I first read the statement, I thought he said, how can we impose these economic losses? And then when you read it in context, it's really hard to believe that a grown man can be that dumb. So America, get Richard Epstein back to the bar with his friends. Oh, yeah, uh, the bar, well, I go other places, the chess club, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, I've never chess. seen that. But what do, they, what do they drink at the chess club? Oh, come on, John. John. Probably the, the same thing that they drink at your high ally club or wherever it is that you're going. Are you kidding? Uh, you know what? I was in Costco. I go to Costco regularly just to that watch. That does not surprise me in the slightest. And you know what? They, this is why it's end times. They actually had a huge amount of whistle pig bourbon, the best commercially available bourbon. Are you I've never John, seen it. At where is this, are John? You, what am I missing? <laughs> well, you're not missing anything. This would not be for you. out Costco <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that basically people over I'll 70 are not allowed to drink alcohol, right? You know, they, they only me... let you take a case of water, but they didn't put a limit on the whistle pig bottles. <laughs> John's hoarding. John's hoarding. Uh, let, me, let me steer you guys back to some of the legal issues for a moment, because this has, as crises often do, this has led to a wave of emergency deregulations. So, for instance, you had... HHS the other day waiving a bunch of HIPAA rules, suspending yes. the prohibition on doctors working across state lines if they didn't have a license in the other state. Thank God. So my well, this is my question for you guys. These are all big policy shifts. Policy shifts I think all of us like. But, you know, conservatives in the past been critical of these kinds of things coming through executive fiat rather than through the legislative process. The example that springs immediately to mind was DACA, although that's obviously not something that happened in the context of a, a real emergency. So, uh, John, I'll start with you on this. How firm a legal ground is this on? We talked about this in the states. How much do executive powers at the federal level expand in an atmosphere like this? Oh, well, they're undoubtedly expand. And, and in fact, I think this is why the Constitution does have an executive and does permit delegation. I think actually the problem uh, for uh, the way we run things these days is that this uh, model of emergency uh, was just domesticated by people like Woodrow Wilson and FDR and made like the permanent state of affairs, uh, which it wasn't intended to be. I think when you look at the framers and their justification for the presidency, this kind of situation is exactly what it was built for. Uh, you know, why did they make the executive power concentrated in a single person? You know, you have examples from Roman history of two consuls uh, in the states. You had uh, president uh, governors with council of advisors. They rejected all that because they said, they concluded that 
the reason you have an executive is someone who can act you know quickly swiftly decisively when there are unforeseen conditions situations chaos emergencies that the legislature couldn't anticipate and can't handle quickly because it's too big and slow and deliberative and so the real justification for for the presidency is times like these. And Congress has delegated, recognized that, and delegated to the president very broad powers in emergency. The law at issue that uh, that President Trump used uh, to declare a national emergency and then disperse funds is called the Stafford Act, which is written for natural disasters and uh, outbreaks like this. There's another thing called the Public Health Services Act, which gives a president uh, and the executive branch a power to impose Tra- uh, bars on transportation across state lines. You know, a lot of people are talking about this Defense Production Act, which you know, I looked at a long time ago. Uh, it does give the president the ability to essentially nationalize different industries, although with the way modern industry works, it's turning out, it seems to me, obsolete because uh, the federal government is just not fast and smart enough to take over entire supply chains. It's better for them to just pay the private sector to do it. They'll do it a lot faster. I, and I don't have any problems with any of that. It's that it's just that, that was a, that's supposed to be a type of government that only comes into effect in times like this, in times of crisis. The progressive government ministry of state we have now essentially took what's a wartime type of government that we have now for this situation and just made it permanent and unending. And so Can I comment on that? Yeah, I just don't. I just okay. wish that we didn't take this as the normal. This should what we're seeing now should be the unusual. But in fact, many people just think it's normal. And that's why you hear everyone say, "What's President Trump doing about this? What's he doing about that?" They just assume President Trump is going to solve the epidemic. Actually, the powers he's exercising are limited because the federal government's limited. Now, what one point that is ironic is you talk about the perpetual extension of wartime powers, and rent control is the direct outcome of that. From a case called Block v. Hearst decided about 98 years ago, in which they said wartime two-year moratorium. Uh, they meant two years in 1924, but the New York Rent Control Act has had three-year renewal for many, many years because it was always a series of, quote, temporary measures. Uh, There's a big difference, however, between the kinds of reforms that John talked about where we liberalize the ability to practice medicine across state lines, which is absolutely critical for people in rural areas who need telemedicine assist because they can't get to major centers, particularly today. Uh, If you look at the stimulus program and you ask yourself, the question, is it sustainable, i.e., could we do this a second time if it fails the first time? The answer to that question is no. Um, The only reason a stimulus may work in one indication is that the sort of short-term jolt gives a boost in economic expectations, which exceed the net social costs that come from the uh, reduction in wealth that all stimulus programs create. And that morale, that sort of shared expectations may carry you over the day. But if you liberalize the ability to provide medical care across state lines by medical medicine, there's no reason to sunset that. You've expanded the pie. You've had no government expenditures. You had savings in government administrative costs. Uh, You should make that permanent. What it shows you is the hollowness of so much state regulation. That is, if you are licensed to practice medicine in in Missouri and you want to treat a patient in Kansas, that Missouri license would certainly help you if the Kansas patient came over the border. Why is it simply not going to help because the guy is there? Territorial licensing in this business is 
is a terrible abuse. And the correct rule, if you wanted it to be done, is anybody who's licensed and in good standing in a given state for five years can practice anywhere in the United States, notwithstanding the opposition of the local board. And that's what this thing is starting to move you with. So we don't want to keep all of this stuff temporary. We want to keep temporary as any kind of a transfer program or a stimulus program, any market liberalization program we would like to make um, permanent. And in fact, the one hopeful thing that comes out of this complete mess is if telecommunications and telemedicine really works and nobody reports deaths and abuses but save lives, it may be very difficult to put that thing back into the box. And that would be a small compensation for this stuff. And so again, classical liberal principles, um, including those which involve interstate competition, are essentially essential to what's going on. Uh, the three states that we have, New York, Illinois, and California, which are in the vanguard of this, are all progressive um, bastions of strength. And so I could say with complete confidence, no matter what the challenge is, it will take an extremely powerful case to get any one of those state Supreme Courts uh, to rule in favor of any challenge. So the, uh, we have this huge intellectual political divide. The federal government is controlled by, roughly speaking, conservative slash a little bit of libertarian. The states are all hardline progressive, and the separation of powers doesn't do you much good if every branch has exactly the same sentiment as every other. John, you know, you mentioned there the existence of executive councils in the past at the state level. I had to look this up to make sure I'm still right. There is still one left. New Hampshire still has an executive council. Oh, uh, really? Another reason yeah. to live up in Upper New England. Oh, now. All right. So, <laughs> uh, you know, there's a different issue, but you've seen in some places, as you tend to uh, in these kinds of circumstances, the demand for firearms go way up, which we, we tend to see that spike when there's feelings of insecurity and obviously people preparing for the worst. So interestingly, in Pennsylvania, when they started locking things down, the order was to close all their, their term there is non-life-sustaining businesses, which meant that the gun stores had to shut down. And that was immediately challenged in court as a violation of Second Amendment rights. Pennsylvania Supreme Court's already denied that claim, and I think the governor's gone back on it now. But now you're seeing this issue in Southern California. The Los Angeles County sheriffs are saying that they're going to close uh, gun stores down. So if this issue, the anticipation was with the Pennsylvania case, if it hadn't been reversed, that it would end up going before the Supreme Court. Uh, John, how strong a case would the Second Amendment crowd have on that one? First of all, it's a sad day to see my home state where everybody grows up with a gun of some kind to shoot at things in the backyard, being one that's uh, trying to shut down gun sales. And I, I think this is actually a tough case because— <laughs> And it really, it's uh, kind of like this uh, free exercise Smith versus Employment Division issue in that if this, I think if they just said there's a ban on all economic transactions or there's a ban on face-to-face -face meetings, uh, then it's hard to say that the Second Amendment right is being discriminated against um, just in the same way. Uh, you know, people could say uh, churches aren't being discriminated against. You know, the free exercise right isn't being singled out. The Second Amendment right isn't being uh, singled out by just a general order. Um, however, uh, that doesn't end the matter because we don't really know, and that's why you could see this going to the Supreme Court, we don't really know what the test is for the Second Amendment. Uh, Justice Scalia left that un uh, unanswered. 
really in his uh, in the um, two cases uh, that were decided, the ones at D. Heller and McDonald. And the reason why they're an answer, so we just don't, suppose it was a free speech case, a First Amendment case. And I'll note in all these, by the way, in all these orders that I've looked at, there's an exception for free speech activities like the media, the press. God, I hope there's one for podcasts, too, because then we're all in business. <laughs> How will America survive the shutdown? I mean, it's but not even it, worth it at that point. It's like there's this, you know, the, suppose this was, suppose uh, the newspapers got shut down. Suppose the government just said all economic activities shut. Then it's an interesting question, right? Under current doctrine, the court would say, well, it doesn't matter whether the laws targeted at newspapers or not. This is just a restriction that affects their right to speak or the right to pr- right to press. Is it served by compelling government interest? Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. It's not clear based on what Richard and I talked about with the death rates uh, and the epidemic rates, whether stopping this is a compelling government interest. The only real compelling government interest the court has recognized in the past is war. Uh, and then you would have to ask, were there other alternatives that were available that could have, you know, advanced the same compelling interest with less harm to the right? Now, if that were applied to Pennsylvania's law, I bet the law would lose because, one, you're not sure whether what they're doing is a compelling government interest or not. But suppose it is. There've got to be lots of ways that you could allow people to buy and sell guns without having to completely shut it off. You know, this less intrusive means you could say they still have to conduct the transaction a certain number of feet away. You could say that the gun has to be sanitized in a certain way. You uh, are seeing, uh, for example, restaurants that are open. Oops, sorry if my phone's going off. No one's supposed to be calling because no one's supposed to be around. All right, I'm going to take off where John began. (laughs) Okay. Um, ended uh, rudely. Uh, the sort of the, Actually, the police would... power justifications are always put in terms of health and safety. And if you want to take the two cases that he mentioned, first the situation with respect to the guns, what Heller said was that uh, uh, we do not treat this as a federalism provision, which simply says that the federal government doesn't have the power to regulate in the state. We said it has a power to regulate, and it's somewhere between strict scrutiny and rational basis. We don't know where in intermediate scrutiny it lies. Uh, the case that have actually come down on this would probably require that you show something of a fairly close relationship. And unless there are very special health risks associated with selling guns, um, I don't think you can do that. I don't think anyone's really going to believe that the crime rates are going to go up at this particular point. We have to prevent people from buying guns for that reason. On the speech side, I think it's actually easier. It would be perfectly okay, I suspect, for somebody to say, we now know that it turns out that rag paper used to publish the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times is a rich source of coronavirus, so you can't have home deliveries. But if you try to shut down the online stuff, uh, at that particular point, it's a pure speech situation, and there's no health and safety justifications whatsoever. And unlike the gun case, when you have restrictions on speech, which is targeted to the press and so forth, that's going to be a strict scrutiny, so the case is going to be uh, relatively straightforward. The real problem here is, I think, one that was alluded to. Some of the things that are done in uh, these kinds of stress periods, which are market liberalization devices, ought to be perpetuated, and others should be stopped as quickly as possible. But if you're a progressive, you could see what happened. I think it was eventually beaten 
back when the uh, House Democrats tried to make a Christmas tree out of the stimulus bill governing everything from minimum wage laws to global warming and the like. And it's those ad- unrelated add-ons that become extremely dangerous, although they're a very effective legislative strategy. And I would actually think under the unconstitutional conditions doctrine, if the only thing that you have is an emergency related to public health and somebody tried to hold you up for an unrelated situation, somebody might be able to say that this was an illegal extraction and strike the thing down. John and I, recall, had this long debate about seven years ago over the constitutionality of that portion of the Obamacare bill, which said that um, if you wish to get the new Medicaid benefits, you have to take the old ones uh, to keep the old ones. It was kind of complicated. And uh, there was unconstitutional conditions was applied into that particular case. Okay, so we're running short on time, but there's two more things I want to get you guys to before we leave. And this first one is is DOJ related, so I'm going to throw it to our DOJ veteran, John. So there was this flare-up the other day over the Justice Department uh, based on this Politico story where they reported that the DOJ had sent a request over to Congress for changes that would help them manage the dislocations from dealing with the virus. And I'll just read to you what Politico wrote here. In one of the documents, the department proposed that Congress grant the attorney general power to ask the chief judge of any district court to pause court proceedings, quote, whenever the district court is fully or partially closed by virtue of any natural disaster, civil disobedience, or other emergency situation. The proposal would also grant those top judges broad authority to pause court proceedings during emergencies. It would apply to, quote, any statutes or rules of procedure otherwise affecting pre-arrest, post-arrest, pre-trial, trial, and post-trial procedures in criminal and juvenile proceedings and all civil process and proceedings according to draft language the department shared with Congress. In making the case for the change, the DOJ wrote that individual judges can currently pause proceedings during emergencies, but that their proposal would make sure all judges in any particular district could handle emergencies in a consistent manner. The request raised eyebrows because of its potential implications for habeas corpus constitutional right to appear before a judge after arrest and seek release. So this spawned a day's worth of outrage that the DOJ was looking to exploit the situation and they were looking to short circuit civil liberties, got a lot of backlash from both sides of the aisle. You had people like AOC criticizing it, but also people like Mike Lee. John, in your judgment, was this being correctly characterized during that backlash and, and was the backlash justified? Oh, no, I don't think so at all. I mean, I, I I saw some people saying, oh, this is a violation of the right to a speedy trial, things like this. Although the, nobody gets a speedy trial these days because the defense actually usually wants a lot more time <laughs> in order to put together right. uh, right, to, to investigate a case. There's nobody going to trial in a few months after their arrest. Uh, but that again, that's not to the prosecution's benefit. What's really going on here, I think, is that a lot of federal courts, uh, judges that I know have reported that most criminal trials are being suspended because you Right. You don't want to bring together all those people into one room, the 12 people in the jury, all the prosecutors, the defense attorney, the def- defendant, the witnesses. Right? You, you don't want to have all them together because that's going to be a prime opportunity for people to catch the disease. But the problem is that you're going to run up against things like uh, the statute of limitations. You're going to run into things like different judicial orders on how fast things have to be produced, how much quickly evidence has to be turned around. and some. So I think it's just a recognition that all of those clocks, which are all ticking whenever you're having a trial, 
for various things should just be put on hold as long as these courts are putting the cases on, putting the trials on hold. And you really don't see this kind of nefarious purpose uh, behind it. And really, the, the, the last thing it would do uh, would make any real difference in terms of habeas corpus. I mean, people who are applying for habeas corpus are often waiting or often have been in jail for years. They've had many, many years of cases just on direct trial, direct appeal. They've usually filed multiple habeases in state and federal courts. You know, waiting two or three months is not going to make a big difference for your average filer of federal habeas corpus. I, I really think this is, is just way overblown. And if it is a huge problem, there's no effective way to deal with it. As John said, you have a right to confront your witnesses. I don't think they meant you have a right to confront your witness on Skype or on Zoom. Um, <laughs> juries need to observe demeanor in order to decide cases as commonly thought. Lots of things start to matter. Um, it's the difference between running a trial like going to a game and sitting in the front row box seat or getting it on television where you see only 20% of the action at any given point in time. So um, I think it's an effort to put the Trump administration as acting in bad faith. My view about it is uh, the correct way to handle all of these things, which seems to be so archaic, is to say, here's a proposal, and this is what we think ought to be done in order to improve it, as opposed to saying to the other guy, you're in bad faith. Um, we go very much to the sort of the ultimate move too fast on these kinds of situations. The final thing that I'll ask you guys, Richard, I'll start with you on this one. Everyone agrees, basically, that we want to restart the economy as soon as we safely can. And, of course, whether the, where they differ is on the prudential questions around when it's safe. And what we've seen in some of the places that seem to be on the rebound is that they are restoring a simulacrum of normal life, but they're doing it via pretty intense surveillance. So in South Korea, they're tracking your cell phone your credit card usage, using surveillance cameras, basically trying to do real-time monitoring of the <coughs> networks by which the disease can spread. The Israelis are getting ready to use a cache of mobile phone data that they had assembled for a counterterrorism program for these purposes. Um, we should definitely talk about the propriety of such things, and I'd welcome you guys doing that. But can we just start with the, the legality of them in an American context? If you were trying to erect a similar system here, would there be legal roadblocks that you'd be running up against immediately? Lord knows. Uh, we do have the Fourth Amendment. There was a very unfortunate decision, I thought, by Chief Justice Roberts in a case I think called Carpenter, in which people had used the yes. uh, various cell location devices to track where people were. And then when they found them at a particular location, they had reasonable suspicion. And then they would try to raise that to get enough information to get a warrant in which they could get a conviction. And I thought that so long as you don't open up what's inside the message, tracking by phone is no more illegal uh, on location than it is by having somebody follow you on foot in the good old Sam Spade style. You know, you cross the street, I cross the street, I hide behind the porch, I go forward from the porch. So I think it's fine. Now, in this particular case, you're doing this with everybody, right? And this is both better and worse. 
It's better because there's no discrimination picking out one guy or another. And it's worse because it's much more comprehensive. My view about it is that it is probably unnecessary in the United States to do that stuff. I don't see what it's actually going to get. I think what you really do is you want to sort of take care of people who do manifest the virus and get them out of general circulation as quickly as possible. But I don't think there's any reason to do much more draconian than that. As I said earlier on, uh, the hard question to ask in terms of figuring out the case with respect to general cloistering or uh, lockdown down kinds of provisions is as follows. How much of this stuff works by voluntary and institutional stuff and how much by government coercion? I take the position that the government coercion comes last, comes least, and is least important and most expensive. So uh, the costs get high and the benefits get low. If that's the case, then I would be reluctant to put into place those kinds of things on a comprehensive basis. What I would try to do is to find places where I thought there were peculiar risks and put these things there. You might want to do it for example, once you start to allow pathetic, you know, athletic contests to take place in crowds and so forth, try to have some kind of monitoring there, mass transit or whatever it is. But I would not try to go comprehensive on this. So I think this Supreme Court would probably tolerate it. That would be a divided vote. And you're not quite sure how everybody's going to go. Uh, but I think as a political matter, you ought to think long and hard uh, before you do this. The much more important thing to do in order to get things going is a completely unrelated issue. You have to get people back to work. You waive permit requirements for virtually every major new project that you can imagine and tell people you ensure and agree to strict liability if it turns out something is done. If you recall when the Santa Monica Freeway went down uh, some years ago, what they did is they relayed all of the environmental protections, which would have taken you normally several years to get approval of a project. They gave the guys incentive programs where if they got early, they got more money. If they were late, they paid a penalty. And they got this thing done in such rapid time that everybody came out better before. That's what you need to stimulate the economy. What you have to do is to liberalize, go much more towards market institutions. And the environmental stuff, which is normally, I think, indefensible and a rather important impediment, becomes an absolute disaster. And so if you think of something like the NEPA statutes and the safe, the safe, the state statutes, which are analogous to this, in any particular area, back off on permits, back off on permits in the building area and so forth. They managed to rebuild San Francisco in less than a year uh, to the same level of original market rates after the earthquake. Well, they didn't have an emergency then. They just had an emergency and they didn't regulate it. Uh, you put rent control in place and it's going to change that forever. So that's the thing you need to do. One has to be really classical liberal once you want to get this contract, this economy going. You should do it as much as you can during this particular period and you should do it afterwards. The days of big regulation is being seen as protection of the public and so forth. It was never correct, and now it's positively dangerous. The question I probably should have asked you guys is if we were able to set up that surveillance structure, how many hours would it take for the Chinese to hack it? Uh, John? Uh, no, I think the answer is, um, and how, <laughs> yeah, I, I would send them the tapes free of charge. I mean, that would solve the problem. John, 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 let me get you in on the, on the surveillance question. You'll have the final word. It's interesting. I think there's a. It's a really. Uh, it's actually a tough, complicated question. As Richard says, the Supreme Court in this Carpenter case two, three years ago said that in order to even get the location of a cell phone, uh, you, the government needs to get a warrant. Uh, but what the court, the case didn't address was uh, whether uh, Fourth Amendment warrants, which are used for criminal procedure, criminal cases 
would be necessary for a kind of regulatory purpose, which is designed to protect public health and safety here. So I'd give you other examples. Uh, for uh, the court doesn't require warrant for drunk driving checkpoints, doesn't require war warrants for random drug tests of federal employees, doesn't require warrants for all the searches at the airport. Right? So uh, suppose the government were to say this, uh, we're not going to ever use any of this information to ever bring a criminal case against anybody. The only thing we're going to use it for is to track who's complying with the quarantines or not, where people are, and so on. It's purely to protect public health and safety now and in the future. Uh, then I think it's actually, might, that's something the courts might uphold. And then on the other side, you put the, the uh, important public policy purpose behind it. As you say, Troy, um, countries like South Korea, I think maybe Singapore might have done it. What they did was they used the, yeah. the tracking information for two things. One was to backtrace. So if they found, tested someone had the virus, they would backtrace and see all the places they had gone and then right. go to those places and try to contain it there. And then the other thing they've been doing with it, which I think I think that would be fine. Right. I, I, I don't see any problem with doing that under uh, the Fourth Amendment, frankly. Uh, you're not investigating all those for crimes. You're trying to warn all the people who intersected with that person that they have been ex they might be exposed to virus. The thing that would be more controversial is that uh, I think what countries are thinking of doing is also seeing, uh, OK, so you've been tested. You've got the virus. You agree to be quarantined in your house. But, of course, the government doesn't have enough people to actually sit and watch you in the house. They could stick, I guess, one of these ankle bracelets. You've had them on, right, Troy? I mean, these ankle bracelets. Right now. Where you're... <laughs> I'm just talking about – I know you've had it in the past because you're always scratching your ankle whenever I see you. No, 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 right this. now. Like, I, I was not allowed <laughs> to leave the house long before the quarantine. As I said, self-enforcement <laughs> dominates collective enforcement. Yeah, you've got these for people on parole of various kinds to track their movements, make sure they go somewhere. Let's suppose you use a cell phone instead and you say to people, okay, we've tested you, you've got it, you have to stay in your house, and rather than do something more coercive, we'll just have the cell phone alert us if you try to move any significant distance away from your home. That might be more controversial, although most people I would think should agree to that rather than undergo something more severe, like having to wear an ankle bracelet or even having yeah. neighbors and the police watching you. Uh, but I think that's what other countries are thinking of doing. I don't know if they've done yet. That would be, that would raise a lot more difficult. But what happened is you swap cell phones with your spouse. You keep yours at home and she takes them. Richard, what are you out. crazy? You would never do that. <laughs> well, I would. I have nothing to hide. But no, I think cell phones don't work as this kind of a device. Um, look, I think the single most important enforcement devices are parents, grandparents, and spouses. Um, and I think uh, if you look in New York City, I, where I live, I mean, my set, most of my friends are like me, over 70. The number of people who have taken to the country and have self-quarantined is so high. And I tried to argue with them that, you know, you're going maybe a little bit too far. Well, I don't want to argue with them in the last five days here because things have gone further. But my view is that there's also a risk of over-quarantining in many settings. And that's the kind of stuff because the public information is so dire. I mean, just the last headline in the Wall Street Journal, American cases pass Spanish cases, right, on the flu. 
Well, great. Uh, Spanish deaths are five times or four times the American deaths. Different setting. Uh, this country is much larger. Uh, the reporting headlines are all panic-inducing, and that influences private as well as public behaviors. And on All that right. happy note, I say goodbye. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. That's going to have to do it. Our micro episode clocked in at an hour, so this endeavor is officially incorrigible. Well, no, um, we're like the government. We expand the fill time. <laughs> Parkinson's Law. My thanks to you both uh, and to our producer, Scott Emmerget. Thanks, of course, to our listeners. Remember to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.